0: You're listening to a sermon from the Langley Canadian Reformed Church. We hope you'll find it to be spiritually edifying. I'd invite you to turn in your Bibles to the scripture reading for this afternoon to 1 Peter, chapter 1, and we'll begin at verse 1, and we'll read through chapter 2, verse 3. Peter, an apostle of Jesus Christ. To God's elect, strangers in the world, scattered throughout Pontius, Galatia, Cappadocia, Asia, and Bithynia, who have been chosen according to the foreknowledge of God the Father, through the sanctifying work of the Spirit for obedience to Jesus Christ and sprinkling by his blood. Grace and peace be yours in abundance. Praise be to the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ. In his great mercy, he's given us new birth into a living hope through the resurrection of Jesus Christ from the dead. And into an inheritance that can never perish, spoil, or fade, kept in heaven for you, who through faith are shielded by God's power until the coming of the salvation that is ready to be revealed in the last time. In this you greatly rejoice, though now, for a little while, you have, you may have to suffer grief in all kinds of trials. These have come so that your faith, of greater worth than gold, which perishes even though refined by fire, may be proved genuine and may result in praise, glory, and honor when Jesus Christ is revealed. Though you have not seen him, you love him. And even though you do not see him now, you believe in him and are filled with an inexpressible and glorious joy. For you are receiving the goal of your faith, the salvation of your souls. Concerning this salvation, the prophets, who spoke of the grace that was to come to you, searched intently and with greatest care Set your hope fully on the grace to be given you when Jesus Christ is revealed. As obedient children, do not conform to the evil desires you had when you lived in ignorance. But just as he who called you is holy, so be holy in all you do. For it's written, Be holy, because I am holy. Since you call on a Father who judges each man's work impartially, live your lives as strangers here in reverent fear. For you know that it was not with perishable things, such as silver or gold, that you were redeemed from the empty way of life handed down to you from your forefathers, but with the precious blood of Christ, a lamb without blemish or defect. He was chosen before the creation of the world, but was revealed in these last times for your sake. Through him you believe in God, who raised him from the dead and glorified him, and so your faith and hope are in God. Now that you have purified yourselves by obeying the truth, so that you have sincere love for your brothers, love one another deeply, from the heart. For you have been born again, not of perishable seed, but of imperishable, through the living and enduring word of God. For all men are like grass, and all their glory is like the flowers of the field. The grass withers and the flowers fall, but the word of the Lord stands forever. This is the word that was preached to you. Therefore, rid yourselves of all malice and all deceit, hypocrisy, envy, and slander of every kind, like newborn babies, crave pure spiritual milk, so that by it you may grow up in your salvation, now that you have tasted that the Lord is good. Our text this afternoon is from what we just read together, 1 Peter 1, the verses 22 through 25. Now that you have purified yourselves by obeying the truth, so that you have sincere love for your brothers, love one another deeply from the heart. For you have been born again, not of perishable seed, but of imperishable, through the living and enduring word of God. For all men are like grass, and all their glory is like the flowers of the field. The grass withers and the flowers fall, but the word of the Lord stands forever." And this is the word that was preached to you. Dear congregation of our Lord Jesus Christ, love and marriage go together like a horse and carriage. Familiar with those words? Now, I'm not going to start singing like Frank Sinatra, but that is a well-known tune, isn't it? And I remember hearing that tune, quite a popular one growing up, I always thought that that was a good song, especially in a world where love and marriage were on the decline. I thought a song that emphasizes those things has a positive message and would bring good things. But as I grew up, I started to think about it more. I started to see the dark side of that song. And I realized that that can really be used as an excuse for opting out of marriage. No love, no marriage. You can't have one without the other. Because the problem is that marriage doesn't produce love. If marriage produced love, then you wouldn't be able to say that you don't have one without the other. If you had marriage, you would have love. The problem is that marriage doesn't produce love. Instead, it needs a constant influx of love. In fact, all our relationships need this constant influx of love. And without it, they'll be shallow. They'll be selfish. They'll be destructive. Or they'll be non-existent. Well, how much more so for Peter's audience, the people to whom Peter writes this letter Persecuted Christians, who are slighted at every turn, who are mocked by their neighbors, who are rejected by their families. They faced evil and trouble and hardship at every turn in their lives. But instead of responding and retaliating in hatred, instead of giving in to those attitudes and responding tit for tat, they were to be filled with love. And, as Peter says, they needed to love more. They needed to love deeper. So how would this be possible for them? How would this be possible for us? Brothers and sisters, from where does our love come? Our love comes from the Word. That's the means that God uses to fill every one of us with increasing and deepening love for each other. And so I preach the Word of God to you this afternoon under this theme, Love deeply. Love deeply. For, as Peter writes in our text, you have been purified by the Word. You've been purified by the Word. You've been reborn through the Word. And you've been evangelized with the Word. So love deeply. I want to point out just for a brief moment here, this theme in points. I want to point something out to make another point. That is that this theme in points really has a, it's a nasty construction in English. No teacher would like how I've arranged this here. No teacher likes to see what I have included in here, which is a passive, a passive verb. Passive is where you don't have the person who's doing the thing in the sentence. No teacher likes a passive. But the Bible is full of them, especially in the New Testament. Why? Well, because in saying that, we acknowledge, in using a passive, such as, I was saved, We actually acknowledge that God saved me. I was chosen. God chose me. You were purified. God purified you. And how does he do this? He does it through his powerful word. So first then, you've been purified by the word. Well, what is this purification? What does this purify refer to? Well, the background for this expression is the ritual washings that the Lord had prescribed in the Old Testament. God had commanded his people at certain times to wash themselves outwardly as a symbolic act of their inward purification. The purification of their lives in terms of their sin and their actions in preparation for worship. So that's the that's the background, and there's no doubt that Peter, as he writes these words, he has that imagery in mind, the Old Testament purifications. But he's referring to something else. He's talking about washing away the things of the past. The sort of things that we read about in chapter 1, verse 18. The empty way of life, handed down to you from your forefathers. The kind of things that we read about in chapter 2, verse 1. Malice, deceit, hypocrisy envy and slander. He's talking about washing away those things and being a clean and a renewed people. And of course, the implication of of saying this, of speaking about this purification, is that all those things of the past, those sinful actions, they make you impure. They make you dirty. They make you unclean. A life filled with sin is an ugly life. It's a dirty life. That's the life that the Jews and the Gentiles that Peter writes to used to live. It was one of of selfishness. It was one of subversiveness, fighting against authorities. It was one of sinful attitudes. But in repenting of their sins and of turning to the Lord Jesus Christ, the believers had purified themselves, had cleansed themselves of those actions and those attitudes. So you see that there's a negative and a positive element here. The negative is this. Get rid of those attitudes. Get rid of those actions of the past. Wash them away like dirt off your body. And the positive is this. Put your hope and your faith in God. The one who has called you to be his children. The one who purifies you. So there's a negative and a positive element of this purification. But we need to sort of ask, how does this purification happen? Because it seems a bit strange to us, doesn't it? Perhaps if if we have our radar on for these kind of things, then we might say, well, wait a second, pastor. You can't say that. You can't say that I have to purify myself. Only God can purify me. But we need to remember that this language reflects the, the mindset of those Old Testament purifications. And of course, in that, when the Lord gave those commands, He meant to communicate that He is the one who cleanses them, who purifies them. It is all the work of our Lord. But yet, at the same time, the emphasis is on the action, on the active and the ongoing engagement of that washing in our lives. So that this purifying work is evident in all aspects of our life. So that's what purification is. So how does this happen? Well, it's through the Word. Through the Word. As Peter says here in our text, through obedience to the truth, now that you have purified yourselves by obeying the truth. Doesn't that so perfectly describe how this works? You see, the truth that Peter is talking about here is the truth about Jesus Christ. If you were to read through this letter, you would see that the Apostle Peter is constantly grounding the Christian life and all aspects of it in the work of Jesus Christ. Indeed, as we could read so often in that baptism form, we as believers are in Christ, rooted in Him. In 1 verse 18, he says that you were redeemed with the precious blood of Jesus Christ. And then verse 21, And through Him you have faith. Chapter 2, submit yourselves to the authorities for Christ's sake. Later in chapter 2, suffer in your life because Christ suffered. In chapter 3, suffer for doing good because Christ suffered rejection and death for you to bring you to God. So this truth that Peter is talking about in our text is the truth of Jesus Christ. The truth about his selfless sacrifice. The truth about his atoning work on the cross. The truth of salvation in him alone. It's truth. Let's just sit on that for a moment. It is truth. Truth is constantly under under attack in this world. Postmoderns don't like truth. They don't believe it. They don't trust it. It's too oppressive. It's too dominating. How can you say that's true? What about what I think? But what does God's Word say? It says that it's truth. It says that it's it's firm. It's secure. It's unchangeable. It's infallible. It's trustworthy. It's true. But Peter doesn't just point to simple belief in the Word, he's speaking about something a little different. He says, as we can read there, obedience to the truth, or by obeying the truth. The person and work of Jesus Christ is more than just a, a principle or an axiom to affirm. It's not just a point that we accept as true and then move on. But it's it's life-changing gospel. It doesn't just remain outside of us, it works inside of us this word of truth is we read in verse 23 living and it's powerfully effective once you come before the truth of christ's powerful work and you believe in that truth then that same powerful word begins to work on you it begins to change you from the outside from the inside out and you can't help but fall under it realizing your own powerlessness and God's power to save and obey that truth. The gospel of life demands submission, the submission of obedience. Freedom from the lordship of sin demands obedience to the lordship of Jesus Christ. Because salvation isn't only salvation out of something, it is also salvation into something. We aren't just called out of our sinful life, we're called into a new life. When an orphan is adopted, they're not just called out of their lonely plight, no father and no mother and not much hope for a future, but they're also called into a new and a wonderful family with all sorts of blessings. We're called to live a gospel-generated life. We're called to live a life of love. Because that's a renewed life, isn't it? It's a life of love. It's a life, as Peter says here, of brotherly love. He says that you've purified yourself by obeying the truth so that you have a sincere love for your brothers, so that you have a brotherly love. That's a beautiful expression, isn't it? Brotherly love. It's, it's love in a family. And we have to think of the words of 1 John 3 and so many other passages, of course. How great is the Father's love that we should be called children of God. We're children of God. Through the work of Jesus Christ, we're adopted into the family of God so that we're all brothers and sisters. And we're filled with that familial love for each other. And so love becomes the characteristic expression of, of the family of God. Just as children respond to the love of their father by loving him, so do we with ours. God's fatherly love is the source of all our brotherly and sisterly love. And it's a love that accepts all sorts of different people. It's the love, remember, of the father. The audience that Peter was addressing in this letter was one that was likely made up of a mixing of Jews and Gentiles. And these were people with very different backgrounds, very different influences and habits, ways of doing things. And we can expect, indeed, we know that there were tensions between these groups as they came together in the Church of Christ. Deep tensions. And yet the gospel of Jesus Christ brought them together in familial love. So that person who used to be an enemy because of who they were, became your brother. And you treated them like that. And it should be the way for us, brothers and sisters. We're not a church together because we naturally like each other, or because we share common interests, or because we make the same amount of money, or because we like to do the same kind of things for fun. That's not what brings us together. It's the death and resurrection of Jesus Christ. It's the gospel of Jesus Christ that brings us together. It's the realization that we are all sinners. Forgiven sinners. Righteous in Jesus Christ. That's what binds us together in love. And so the church is a place where we love, like brothers and sisters. So we don't slander falsely. We don't gossip maliciously, we don't hurt intentionally, we don't condemn rashly, we love, we accept, we forgive, we give, we care. As God has freely accepted us, so we freely accept and love one another. How can we do this? Well, it's only through Jesus Christ. And it's only through His Word that is, there needs to be a change in us. Our hearts need to be regenerated. We need to be reborn. So we've been reborn through the Word. And therefore, we are to love. You can see with this word reborn, that it too has a, has a negative and a positive element. The negative is the old life, the one about which Hebrews 9 is true. Man is destined to live once, and after that to face judgment. It's a temporal life. The life that we're talking about is life in the flesh, which is in fact the word that Peter uses in verse 24. He says, For all flesh is like grass. That's the temporal existence. That's this short life that we have. There's something about, that's characteristic about this life, and that is that it ends. It always ends. You know why, right? You know that it wasn't always like that, was it? But Adam and Eve, our first parents, they fell into sin, and so they plunged the whole of humanity into the situation that we now find ourselves indeed that we are guilty of as well, into sin. Whole humanity that's lost in sin, in depravity, in rebellion, and in corruption. And these people that Peter was writing to, they knew about sin. They knew about sin. They had lived that kind of life before. And so... They knew about the pain, they knew about the hardship, they knew the, the sorrow, they knew the despair. They had lived that in the past, and they were still living it in the present. They still experienced sin in their lives. They were being persecuted, remember, for their faith. They were experiencing terrible trials, so bad that Peter compared it to a fire, like going through a fire. Their life was one, of full, one that was full of pain and grief. We know about sin too, don't we? If Peter were to write this letter to us, he probably wouldn't talk about how we're persecuted at every turn, mocked and scoffed. That happens, to be sure, but certainly not as prominent today as it was in the day that Peter wrote. But we still know sin, don't we? We know about the pain that sin brings, sickness, death, hardship. We know about the grief that comes as a result of even our own actions. Indeed, we know the effect of sin on our minds, on our hearts, on our bodies. We feel it on ourselves. We see it in our loved ones. We know this old life. We know this struggle in our own heart as well against the sinful nature. Well, that's the old life. But the positive is the new life. That we have been reborn. That we are new people. And this rebirth isn't a temporary existence like the old birth. But this rebirth is into a new and an imperishable life. It's into one that endures. It's into one that perseveres. The language that Peter uses here is of the same as human procreation it talks about the seed. Well, the human seed is the one that generates the life that comes into this world, that grows up and becomes strong, but then inevitably, inevitably, inevitably weakens until it dies. But the imperishable seed of the gospel enlivens us to a life that is unlike this earthbound existence. It's one that grows up and becomes stronger. And then when it's faced with trouble and persecution, it gets stronger still. And then when the body decays and grows weak, it gets stronger still. And then, finally, when the body breathes its last breath, then that life is promoted into glory. And it enters the presence of God And it awaits that final day when the perishable will be swallowed up by the imperishable. And we will all live with God. How does that happen? Through the word of God. That seed is imperishable. It's so strong it can take anything that comes up against it. Because it's recreated by the word of God. The Word of God, that's what created this entire universe. In the beginning of the world, God spoke the universe into existence. His Word is powerful enough to create everything that we see in this world. And just as God spoke life into existence in the beginning, God also speaks new life into our hearts. And the result of this new life, the result of this imperishable seed, the result of this seed that grows and grows and grows and never dies, is love, deep love. Notice that in verse 22, Peter talked about sincere love for your brothers, brotherly love. He talked about developing a brotherly love, a familial love. Genuine, caring, accepting love for each other. But then notice what he says in that same verse as he goes on. He says, love one another deeply. Peter's saying you need to go beyond that familial love. The love that you need to have doesn't just flow from a sense of duty or of care or concern or respect. No, you can find all those things in this temporal, earthly existence. But the love that you are to flame up is the love that comes from the imperishable seed of God's Word. It's the love of the Father that looks upon wretched, miserable sinners and says, You are my children. It's the love of the Son who says, You are my friends and my brothers and my sisters. I will lay down my life for you. It's the love of the Spirit who says, I'll make my home in your heart. And I'll drive out the sin from your life, and I will feed you on the life-giving word of the Lord Jesus Christ. That is love. That is deep love. That is pure, sincere, undefiled love. And that's the quality of love that Peter tells his audience to share with each other. But how? How? Do you feel the tension there? How how can we continually give ourselves? How can we empty ourselves? How can we show this kind of deep love when we still struggle ourselves? When we still feel that tension between the old life and the new life? When we so often fail to love? When we're filled with hatred and malice? And envy. From where are we going to get this constant influx of love? From the Word. From the Word. Peter says, you have been evangelized by the Word. This is the Word that was preached to you. The answer to the question of where are we going to get this love from is almost unbelievably, through preaching, through receiving that Word, through being evangelized by it. It's amazing, but look at what Peter says here. He commands us to love one another deeply since we've been born of this imperishable seed through the living and enduring Word of God. And notice what he does here. Peter quotes one of the most powerful and certainly one of the most well-known and prominent passages in the Old Testament. Isaiah 40. The grass withers and the flowers fall, but the word of our Lord stands forever. This was the prophecy of Isaiah, one of the greatest Old Testament prophets, who gave one of the most powerful words of comfort to God's people in one of the worst predicaments that they were in. And he said, your God is going to come to save you. And then he backed it up by saying, this is the word of our God. This is the word of our God, and it stands forever. And now Peter's saying, this word, with all its power, with all its surety, with all its strength, is what was preached to you. Indeed, as he said earlier, all the Old Testament prophets were looking forward and were speaking about what you have seen come true in Jesus Christ. And that is what is preached to you. That is what is preached to you. Brothers and sisters, we need to realize what this word really is. What is this word? It's not a bumper sticker that says, Somebody loves you. It's not a sappy story that is gonna go on for half an hour and make you feel warm and fuzzy at the end. It's not the good idea of the minister that he bakes up in his own mind as he tries to think of something helpful to give. It's the word of Jesus Christ. It's the word of Jesus Christ. Notice here, when Isaiah gave this prophecy that's quoted here, that all men are like grass, at the end of it he said, the word of our God stands forever. So Peter would have known this. This was a well-known passage. But then he decides to change it and to show us something very important about this word. And he says, but the word of the Lord stands Forever. It's the word of the Lord. It's the word of the Lord Jesus Christ. It's the word that comes from the risen Lord, who is King of kings and Lord of lords. It's the word of Jesus Christ ascended on high in heaven directly to you. It's the promise of the King. It's the command of the King. It's the exhortation of the King. It's the rebuke that comes from the King. It's the admonition that comes from the King. It's the comfort of the King. It's the powerful and effective word of the Lord that created galaxies and creates new life. And it's the kind word of your Savior in heaven. That, Peter says, is the word that was preached to you. That is the word that was preached to you. How will you be able to endure through trials that feel like fire? You have the king of the universe speaking words of strength to you. How are you going to fight against temptations that come on your way? How are you going to battle against part of your nature, your own sinful nature? How are you going to fight against the power of the devil? You have the word of the triumphant Lord in heaven speaking words of warning and of guidance to you. How are you going to stay focused on eternal things when the things of this world weigh so heavily on you? We have the mediator of the covenant, speaking words of promise and hope to us. How are we going to be filled with ever-deepening and pure wells of love for others? We have the Lord of love speaking words of love to us through preaching. Simple preaching. That's how Jesus Christ has chosen to spread the news of new life through his blood. It was preaching that convicted the hearts of those that Peter preached to on Pentecost morning. It was preaching that caused Cornelius the Gentile to repent and believe the message of Christ. It was preaching that spread, that caused the church to spread from Jerusalem to Galilee to the ends of the earth. It was preaching that preserved the word of truth through years of spiritual poverty and deformation. It was preaching that caused the Reformation to explode across Europe in the 1500s. It was preaching that brought the gospel to this continent. It was preaching that caused the yoke of spiritism and animism to break in so many parts of Africa. It's preaching that caused the church to spread all over the world. It's preaching that the Lord will use to guide His children through their life. When preaching and preachers are faithful to the Word of God, it is preaching that continues to be the Lord's Word to us, which strengthens and preserves His church until the day when faith will be sight, and we will no longer only hear His Word, but we will see it as well. It's by that preaching, week after week, Sunday after Sunday, morning and afternoon, that the Lord continues to speak his word to us. May God continue to work in this place and fill us more and more deeper and purer with love. Amen. This has been a sermon from the Langley Canadian Reformed Church. For more information, please visit us on the web